You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Jody Pico. This program originally aired in 2016. Thank you. Thank you. I, you heard that I'm on a massive book tour. This is the cruelest stop on my book tour because I flew into my home state and I don't get to go home. It's so sad. So you guys have to make me feel better tonight. Um, so tonight I'm going to be doing a short reading for you from Small Great Things. I'm not going to tell you anything about this book because I want the voice of this character to tell you herself. All you need to know is that this is Ruth and she is an African-American nurse who has worked on a labor and delivery ward for 20 years. The most beautiful baby I ever saw was born without a face. From the neck down, he was perfect. 10 fingers, 10 toes, chubby belly. But where his ears should have been, there was a twist of lips and a single tooth. Instead of a face, there was a swirling eddy of skin. His mother, my patient, had received prenatal care, including an ultrasound, but the baby had been positioned in a way that the facial deformity hadn't been visible. No one was expecting this. Maybe for that very reason, she chose to deliver at our little cottage hospital and not Yale New Haven, which is better equipped for emergencies. She labored for 16 hours before she delivered. The doctor lifted the baby, and there was nothing but silence. Is he all right? The mother asked, panicking. Why isn't he crying? The OB silently met my gaze and turned back to the parents. In soft words, he said their child had profound birth defects that were incompatible with life. On a birth pavilion, death is a more common patient than you'd think. When we have anencephalies or fetal deaths, we know the parents still have to bond with and mourn for that baby. So I cleaned him and swaddled him the way I would any other newborn while the conversation behind me stopped and started like a car choking through the winter, questions no one ever wants to ask and no one ever wants to answer. The mother was still crying when I settled the baby in the crook of her elbow, his tiny hands windmilled. She wore an expression I've only seen in paintings and museums of a love and a grief so fierce that they forged together to create some new raw emotion. I turned to the father. Would you like to hold your son? He looked like he was about to be sick. I can't, he bolted from the room. I cornered him in the parents' lounge. Your wife and your son need you. That's not my son. That, that thing is not going to be on this earth for very long, which means you better give him all the love you had stored up for his lifetime right now. When we entered the hospital room, his wife was still nuzzling the infant. I took the tiny bundle from her arms and handed the baby to her husband. I thought about my actions, you know, if I did the right thing, if it was my place. When the father started to cry, the sob shook his body like a hurricane bends a tree. He sank down beside his wife on the hospital bed. They took turns holding their son for ten hours. That mother, she even tried to let him nurse. I couldn't stop staring, because it was the most remarkable thing I'd ever seen. Love has nothing to do with what you're looking at, and everything to do with who's looking. When the infant died, it was peaceful. We made casts of the newborn's hand and foot for the parents to keep. I heard the same couple came back two years later and delivered a healthy daughter. It just goes to show you, every baby is born beautiful. It's what we project on them that makes them ugly.
On Thursdays, my shift goes from 7 a.m. till 7 p.m. We usually have two nurses on the birthing pavilion, three if we're swimming in human resources. I note how many delivery suites are occupied, three right now, a nice slow start to the day. Marie, the charge nurse, is already in the room where we have our morning meeting when I come inside, but Corinne, the second nurse on shift, is missing. What's it going to be today? Marie asks. Flat tire, I reply. This guessing game is a routine. What excuse will Corinne use today for being late? Ah, that was last week. I'm going with the flu. She looks up from the regional section of the paper. I saw Edison's name in here again. My son has made the highest honors list for every semester of his high school career, but just like I tell him, that's no reason to boast. There are a lot of bright kids in this town. Still, Marie says, for a boy like Edison to be so successful, well, a boy like Edison. I know what she's saying, even if she's careful not to spell it out. There are not many black kids in the high school, and as far as I know, Edison's the only one on the highest honors list. Comments like this feel like paper cuts, but I've worked with Marie for over 10 years now, so I try to ignore the sting. White people don't mean half the offensive things that come out of their mouths. Corinne explodes into the room. Sorry I'm late. That stupid tire I replaced last week, it has a leak or something. Marie reaches into her pocket and pulls out a dollar, which she flicks across the table at me. All right, Marie says, floor report. Room two is Jessica Myers. She had a vaginal delivery this morning at 3 a.m. I'll take her, Corinne and I say in unison. Everyone wants the patient who's delivered. It's the easier job. I had her during active labor, I point out. Right, Marie says. Ruth, she's yours. Room three, Thea McVaughn, she's in active labor. I've got her, Corinne says. We only take one active labor patient at a time if we can help it, which means that the third patient will be mine. Room five is a recovery. Brittany Bauer was a gestational diabetic. Baby's on quarterly blood sugars. Got it. I push away from the table to go find Lucille, the night nurse, who hands me Brittany Bauer's file. Davis, I read. That's the baby? Yeah, I haven't done the bath or the newborn assessment yet. No problem. Is that it? The dad's name is Turk, Lucille says. Something, um, I don't know, a little off about him. Like Creeper Dad? Last year, we had a father who was flirting with the nursing student in the room during his wife's delivery. When she wound up having a C-section, instead of standing behind the drape near his wife's head, he strolled across the OR and said to the nursing student, is it hot in here or is it just you? No, no, he's just sketchy. I don't know, I can't put my finger on it. I knock softly. I'm Ruth. I'm going to be your nurse today. I smile down at the baby cradled in Brittany's arms. Oh, isn't he a sweetie? What's his name? I ask, although I already know. It's a means to start a conversation. Brittany doesn't answer. She looks at her husband, a hulking guy who's sitting on the edge of his chair. He's got military short hair, and he's bouncing the heel of one boot. I get what Lucille saw in him. Turk Bauer makes me think of a power line that snapped during a storm and lies across the road just waiting for something to brush against it so it can shoot sparks. Doesn't matter if you're shy or modest. Nobody who's just had a baby stays quiet for long. They want to share this life-changing moment. But Brittany, well, it's almost like she needs permission to speak. Domestic abuse, I wonder? Davis, she chokes out. His name is Davis. Well, hello, Davis. Would you mind if I take a listen to his heart and lungs? Her arms clamp tighter on the newborn. I could do it right here. You don't have to let go of him. You have to cut a new parent a little bit of slack, especially one who's already been told her baby's blood sugar's a bit low. So I tuck the thermometer under Davis's armpit and get a normal reading. 
I look at the whorls of his hair. A patch of white can signify hearing loss. An alternating hair pattern can flag metabolic issues. I press my stethoscope against the baby's back, listening to his lungs. I slide my hand between him and his mother, listening to his heart. Whoosh. It's so faint, I think it's a mistake. I listen again, trying to make sure it wasn't a fluke. Turk stands up, so he's towering over me. Nerves look different on fathers. They get combative sometimes, as if they could bluster away whatever's wrong. I hear a very slight murmur, I say delicately, but it could be nothing. Still, I'll have the pediatrician take a listen. While I'm talking, trying to be as calm as possible, I do another blood sugar. It's an AccuCheck, which means we get instant results. Now, this is great news, I say, trying to give the Bowers something positive to hold on to. Davis's sugar is much better. I walk to the sink and fill water in a plastic bowl and set it on the warmer. Why don't I get him cleaned up and we can try nursing again? I scoop the baby up, place Davis on the warmer, and begin my exam. I can hear Brittany and Turk whispering fiercely as I check the fontanelles on the baby's head for suture lines to make sure the bones aren't overriding each other. The parents are worried, and that's normal. A lot of patients don't like to take the nurse's opinion on any medical issue. They need to hear it from the doctor, even though nurses are often the ones who first notice a quirk or a symptom. I look for facial bruising, hematoma, abnormal shaping of the skull. I check the palmar creases in his tiny hands. I measure the circumference of his head and the length of his squirming body. I scan the base of the spine for dimples or hair tufts or any other indicator of neural tube defect. The whispering behind me has stopped. But instead of feeling more comfortable, it feels ominous. What do they think I'm doing wrong? By the time I flip him back over, Davis's eyes are starting to drift shut. Babies usually get sleepy a couple hours after delivery, which is one reason to do the bath now. It'll wake him up long enough to try to feed again. I diaper him, wrap him up in a blanket like a burrito. The last thing I do is put an ID band on him that will match the ones his parents have and fasten a tiny electronic security bracelet on his ankle. I can feel the parents' eyes hot on my back. There, I say, handing the infant to Brittany again. Clean as a whistle. Now let's see if we can get him to nurse. I reach down to help position the baby, but Brittany flinches. Get away from her, Turk Bauer says. I want to talk to your boss. They are the first words he has spoken to me in the 20 minutes I've been in this room. I'm pretty sure he doesn't want to tell Marie what a stellar job I've done. I find her filling out a chart. We've got a problem in five, I say. The father wants to see you. What happened? Absolutely nothing, I reply. I told them I heard what sounded like a murmur and that I'd contact the pediatrician and I bathed the baby and did his exam. I must be doing a pretty awful job of hiding my feelings, though, because Marie looks at me sympathetically. Maybe they're worried about the baby's heart. I'm just a step behind her as we walk in. I understand you wanted to see me, Mr. Bauer? Marie asks. That nurse, Turk says, I don't want her touching my son again. Heat spreads from the collar of my scrubs. No one likes to be called out in front of her supervisor. I can assure you that Ruth is one of the best nurses we have, Mr. Bauer. If there's a formal complaint, I don't want her or anyone who looks like her touching my son, the father interrupts, and he folds his arms across his chest. He's pushed up his sleeves while I was out of the room. Running from wrist to elbow is the tattoo of a Confederate flag. Marie stops talking. For a moment, I honestly don't understand, and then it hits me. They don't have a problem with what I've done, just with who I am. Thanks. <laughs>
Nice move, Jody. Yeah, you want to keep this kind of doing a little limbo under that. We have new chairs tonight, by the way, and a new set. I don't know what you guys think of it. So glad you're here. Not only are you here, but the opportunity for many, many more people is out there because this is going to be a live broadcast. So I'm going to ask you to play along with a little live <laughs> broadcasty things, if you don't mind. Um, so. There are a couple things. One, I'm gonna re-identify myself, not because it's a strictly middle-aged moment, but because, <laughs> because people out there in the radio world will wanna hear what's actually going on, so you may hear me do that from now and again. And the other thing is that there may be times when I ask you to applaud spontaneously, just for <laughs> pure ego gratification. <laughs> But also because we need actually a nice, clean bit of applause. So why don't we just begin right there? Really rolling. Beautifully done. You can just, you know, for the rest of the, the interview, summon all those times you've been kept awake for many, many hours longer than you should reading a Jody Pico book. <laughs> because we all know we've been there. Jody, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. In New Hampshire. Yeah, could you pull that a yeah, little I'm bit closer? Pull it closer? That yep. would be great. So, you know, I was I of course read the book. You said it's one of the hardest books you've ever written mm -hmm. and that you've been thinking about writing about race for some 20 years. Right. So, what happened? So, I about 25 years ago was living in New York and <clears throat> there was a real-life news story about an African-American undercover cop who had been shot four times in the back by his white colleagues on the subway, even though he was wearing uh, something called the color of the day, which was this wristband that identified him as an undercover cop. And um, I started to write this book because it was really upsetting to me. And I failed miserably. I just couldn't seem to create authentic voices, authentic characters, and authentic story. And I really wrestled with whether I had the right to write a book. I'm a white woman. Why should I be writing about racism? Not my story to tell. And, you know, for years, I would play devil's advocate with myself. I'd say, well, you know, you write all the time in the voices of people you're not. You write as men. You write as Holocaust survivors. You write as school shooters. You write as rape victims. You've never been any of those things. And then I would ask, why is this different? Hmm. Well, it's because race is different. Racism is different. We can't talk about it without being afraid of offending people. And so very often we make the choice not to talk about it at all. So fast forward to 2012, and I come across yet another news story that really captivates me. It's the story of an African-American nurse in Flint, Michigan, who had 20 years of experience on a labor and delivery board and who uh, helped deliver a baby. The father called in her supervisor and said, I don't want her or anyone who looks like her to touch my kid, pushed up his sleeve to reveal a swastika tattoo. And um, in their infinite wisdom, the hospital put a post-it note on the baby's file saying, no African-American personnel to touch this baby. Uh, she wound up suing. She settled out of court. I hope she got lots and lots of money. But it made me kind of wonder, what if? What if I could turn this into a novel? What if that nurse was the only one alone with a kid when something went wrong and she had to decide between following her supervisor's orders or saving a baby's life? 
What if as a result of that, she wound up on trial defended by a white public defender who, like me, like a lot of my friends, would never consider themselves to be a racist? What if I could tell the story in the alternating points of view of the nurse, the public defender, and the white supremacist father as they all began to unpack their beliefs about race and power and privilege? And suddenly, it was like this light went off. I knew I was gonna be able to finish this book. And it was because I had shifted my intent and I had shifted my audience. I was not writing a book to tell people of color how hard their lives are. That is not my story to tell, and it never will be. And frankly, there are plenty of amazing authors of color doing an excellent job of that without me. I was writing to tell the people who look like me that even though it's easy to point to a skinhead and say, that's a racist, it's a lot harder to point to yourself and say the same thing. Mm. Well, that leads to one of the questions from the audience about how character-driven your novels are, but how research-intensive they mm -hmm. are. And in order to be ready to write in the voice of an African-American woman, you did a lot of work. So one mm -hmm. of those things was interviews with African-American <clears throat> women. What, what kinds of things did you hear that informed your writing? So I'll back up a little bit, because before I could even interview women of color, I really had to do a little work myself. I wasn't going to ask my readers to unpack all of their biases if I hadn't done it. So I actually started off by reading a lot of work by racial justice educators and experts so I could get a vocabulary. Then I went to a racial justice workshop. And I went in there thinking, you know, we were talking about this earlier. I went in there thinking, oh, come on, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I'm open-minded. And I left every single night in tears because there were things that came up in these workshops that I just never had thought of before. Like, like what? For example, um, there was an Asian-American woman who was in tears talking about her love-hate affair with eyeliner because she couldn't use it easily on her own features, but it was the standard of beauty that she'd been brought up with in America. There was an African-American woman who stood up and talked about how every morning she has to put on a mask, a metaphorical mask, and go face people in a way that she becomes the kind of black woman they can handle, that she could never really be authentic. She had to be what people expected her to be. And I thought both of those times, I have never felt that. I never will feel that. And that in itself, that ignorance is such a privilege. And I hadn't really tapped into those privileges. Then I sat down with women of color and I did about 100 hours of interview tape with multiple women. And I was asking them all kinds of stuff, their, their failures, their hopes, their successes, their fears. And again, it was their stories that really spoke to me. Um, there was one, young woman who had just had her second son and who talked to me the morning after uh, there was yet another shooting by the police of an unarmed African-American man. And she came in very upset and said, <clears throat> how, how do I keep my son safe when he grows up? How do I teach him to not be black? And uh, she was the one who asked me, how often do you talk about race with your kids? Mm. And I said, you know, when something's in the news. And she said, I talk about it every night because it's a matter of life and death. There was a young girl who told me about how she would carry a Vassar water bottle with her on public transportation and would face the word Vassar out in the empty seat so that as white people walked by, they would know she was safe to sit with. And you know, all of these stories accrued and they just, they began to, to make me realize that racism is not just about prejudice. 
you could take every skinhead and ship them off to Mars, there would still be racism in the US. That's because it's also about power and privilege. And if you happen to be born with light skin in this country, you have opportunities and advantages that other people don't have, and sometimes that are a direct result of the fact that they don't have them. Well, some of the most interesting insights in this book, you, you gave us a really great portrait of Ruth, you know, a professional, a woman who really cares about a job, but she's also, quote unquote, passing. She's living, mm -hmm. working in a white mm -hmm. world. She has a relationship with her son, mm -hmm. who, who she tells him every day, you are, you know, you are more than just a black person. Mm -hmm. But he also hears her when she answers the phone. He's like, were you just talking to a white person? Because mm -hmm. your voice changes. I love Edison. He's one of my favorite characters. Yeah. He's such a fantastic character. Yeah. But also that kind of idea of, you know, does she believe it? Does mm. she believe? She, is she just carrying around the Vassar cup on some level? Yeah. And what's really interesting about Ruth, like many of the women that I spoke with, is that um, she, all the decisions that she has made in her life have been a result of trying to make sure that her son has a better life. But it's her definition of better. And one of the things that you see on Spool in the book is that Edison has grown up in a very well-off well white neighborhood in New Haven. Uh, he goes to a predominantly white school. He has white friends. He goes on vacation with them. But it isn't until he asks out one of those white friend's sisters that suddenly he's black. Hmm. And that is something I heard from a lot of the women that I spoke with. So you say, as you say, you know, race is fraught. It's a different category. Hmm. You can write as a white supremacist or you know, a rape <laughs> victim, but writing as a black woman is a very different thing. And, and honestly, it's, you know, I, I, really, I really struggled with that. Um, there's a lot being said now about the right to write and own voices and whether mm -hmm. we should kind of write in our own lane or transcend them. And, and I really, I, I know that reading this book will be a different experience for a person of color than it will be for a white person. And I'm actually okay with that. Mm -hmm. I had to think really hard about why I was telling this story. And if I did decide that there was a reason I needed to tell it, and it was because of the audience I was headed toward, um, then I had to do my homework. And I had to write with compassion and empathy and with these amazing women who not only shared their stories, but then personally read the manuscript and vetted the voice of Ruth so that she was authentic. That huh. was very important to me. Um, you know, it's, uh, if, I think if you're a person of color and you read the book, the best I could hope for is that you would say, okay, she did do her homework, and I appreciate the fact that she's trying to have this conversation. I think if you're a white person and you read the book, you're going to be rattled, and I think that's good. I was rattled. Good. Thank you. You know, I'm one <laughs> of those people who thinks, like, you know, I grew up in New Hampshire, but I had parents who were liberal. You know, it was a different, if it was a different story for me. Mm -hmm. I lived in the South for a long time, right. so I thought, you know, I'm, I'm not, I don't have all those hang-ups that other people have. Mm -hmm. what, what was revealed to you about your own inner vision mm -hmm. of yourself as a white person? I mean, honestly, that I'd grown up for 47 years of my life not talking about race. And uh, that is a huge privilege. Um, you know, you can ask my kids, I, I, now that I have started this journey, and it's a journey, and I'm still learning, and I'm still going to make mistakes, but I've learned that just because you don't talk about something doesn't mean it's not your problem, and that it is more important for us to have this conversation, make mistakes, say, I'm so sorry, thank you, I'm learning from that, and let's move forward, than to not talk about it at all. So 
at those workshops, in those conversations with those women, did you feel flat-footed? Did you feel like, oh, I hope I didn't just I say something? I felt like an stupid. idiot. I mean, I left in tears every night. I just felt like the most ignorant person ever. And I felt ashamed. I felt guilty, which I think is also something that, that a lot of people who are my color mm. think about. You know, you feel like, in a way, it's not your fault. You know, I, I personally did not, I was not a slave owner, you know, and yet... Of course, I'm still part of the problem because there are all kinds of implicit biases in the world. And really, just the fact that I happen to belong to the majority rather than the oppressed group means that you, you know, I'm still part of the problem. It was honestly so eye-opening for me. And I think the really important thing is that we do feel like we're going to make mistakes. We do feel like we're going to say the wrong thing. We're paralyzed by it. We feel guilty. Look, I'm, I'm going to wake up white tomorrow. I know that. And I can't change that. So what can I do with that? What can I do with that privilege that makes this world a slightly better place? Well, you also have the privilege of being a writer whose books are read by millions of people. That's what I was going to say. And that's, no, this is, this is really important. And that's, that's really the main thing. We need to be talking to people like us. We need to talk to the people who don't want to have conversations about racism. It, this is super easy. You all can have a homework directive. Everyone's going to celebrate Thanksgiving this year, except for me, because I'll be in the UK. But you're all going to celebrate Thanksgiving, and everyone has a racist uncle who says a really stupid joke at Thanksgiving, right? And what do you usually do? You say, oh, it's Uncle Bob. He's 95. He's never going to change. Well, let this be the year that you say, hey, you know, Uncle Bob, you shouldn't say that. Here's why. If you don't have that conversation, he may never hear the other side. He may never start to change his mind. And he still might not. But at least you've, you've made that, that introduction. You know, um, one of the really cool things that you can do with the privilege of being white is recognize that people listen to you. People listen to me. I certainly have a voice. But in most cases, if you're white, people care about your opinion. And you will always be called on at a board meeting. And you will always be at the table when important discussions are happening. And sometimes a really cool thing that you can do with that privilege is to say, are you all listening? Are you listening? Excellent. And you pass the microphone to someone whose voice has not been heard historically. That's a really great thing to do. Look for the person who hasn't been speaking. Look for the person whose point of view is not represented. And very often that can be a person of color who isn't invited to speak up. Make sure that person is heard. Well, so we live in New Hampshire, a majority white state by mm -hmm. a long shot. Yep. Um, there's a question here. What influence has living in New Hampshire had on your writing in general and on small great things in particular? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. In a way, this is exactly the place that I need to have this discussion. You know, um, I live in Hanover, and I'm so grateful every day to Dartmouth because at least there's just a smidge of color in my town because there are kids who come to the university from very, you know, various places. Um, but that is not true in a lot of places in this state. And there's a reason for that. I've actually had so many conversations with my husband about this because we both love this state so much. And he says, I just don't understand. I don't understand why, why aren't more African-American families flocking here? You know, and the reason is really that, honestly, race is bundled up so tightly with socioeconomics that it's very hard to separate the two. And um, for many African-American families, for example, childcare 
is something that happens in the confines of a city where you can drop your kids off with their auntie after school and you can go work your second job. And, and those opportunities don't always exist in New Hampshire where sometimes you know, the distance between you and your job is 45 miles. Um, you know, it, it's a little different. We don't have public transport, at least not up north where I live. And uh, you know, there are lots of reasons historically that we have not seen an influx of people of color into New Hampshire which means it's even more important for us in this white space to talk about racism, to ask ourselves why, and to make sure that if we are part of a company, if we're part of a school, we are actively looking for people of color to join us and our community, because let's face it, we're really boring if we only listen to voices like our own. You know, we really should be trying to expand and hear diverse voices. That's your leading edge. That's how you learn. You're reminding me of something. We had a, a recruiter from NPR or a diversity expert mm -hmm. talk about recruiting and how difficult it was in many white communities to lure diverse talent, people of color. And one of the things he said, which reminded me of my obliviousness, was hair. There's no place to get their hair done. Yeah. You know, like if you have all white hair places. Right. You know, it's just one of the kind of things that we don't think of. Right, yeah. And it's a that's a really great example. You know, if I can't see any of you, I don't know what color any of you are right now in the audience because it's all very dark. But, you know, if you ask most um, people of color to name a shampoo that white people use, they can all do it, no problem. If you ask white people to name a shampoo that is traditionally used by people of color, no one knows. This actually leads to a really important question mm -hmm. to you. What kind of product do you use in your hair? I have curly hair. <laughs> I have curly hair, but my curls are never as flawless as yours. Well, that's really lovely. And I'm happy to report, actually, that the product I use is for curly girls. Um, it's, it's called Weedad, O-U-I-D-A-D.com. I use climate control. But what's really nice about Weedad is that they recognize that there are many different types of curls and there are different types of hair. And... Um, you can pick, based on your type of curl, what sort of products will work for you. And they actually are, that product is used by a lot of African-American women as well. I'm really glad we got to that. Same. Yeah, very important. <laughs> well, as you mentioned, you know, it is easy to pick out a racist. And one of the characters here, Turk Bauer, you, you know, as you do in your books, you get inside the head of these people. This mm -hmm. is an angry white supremacist, a history of violence against minorities, including his own father, who was mm -hmm. gay. So... Is, how do you do that? I mean, where do you turn to learn like how a white supremacist thinks? You do research. So um, I met with two former white supremacists, uh, one in LA and one in Iowa. And uh, these are men who both had very, very violent lives. Um, one of them was living in LA, running with a very violent skinhead crew in the 80s. And at one point, he beat up a gay man and left him with his head bleeding against a curb, assuming he was going to die. And years later, after he wound up getting out of the movement, one of the first things he did was write a letter to the rabbi of the Simon Wiesenthal Center. Because in his heyday as a skinhead, he had written a very offensive letter to the man and he wanted to apologize. And the rabbi wrote back and said, why don't you come work for me? And so he went to go work for the, the Wiesenthal Center, basically giving talks every day about leaving a life of hate. One day he looked up in the cafeteria and there was the man he had left for dead, who was now a docent at the Wiesenthal Center and leading a tour group through. Their eyes connected and they wound up over a period of months sitting down, talking to each other, apologizing, accepting an apology. They are now friends. They spend holidays at each other's houses and every day they give talks about their story. 
Um, <clears throat> the other man that I met with ran with a very violent crew in Philadelphia. And his story was that um, he went to jail at one point and he found out that he had more in common with the young African-American inmates than he did with the white ones. And they would talk about the girls they missed and the food they missed. Um, and then when he got out of jail, he went to go work for a Jewish man. And of course, he had been told that this Jewish man was going to absolutely uh, steal him, you know, steal his money and not pay him. Anyway, the day before the contract ended, this Jewish man called in uh, Frankie and said, um, uh, he was thinking, oh, here it comes, here it comes, I'm not going to get my pay. And the Jewish man basically said, you've been doing such an exemplary job, I actually want to give you twice what I contracted. And Frankie started to realize how many exceptions to the rule do there have to be before you have to change the rules. So both of these guys have had dramatic changes and dramatic turnarounds. One of them is now married to a Jewish woman. The other one works with the FBI to ferret out individuals who are white supremacists. Um, what I learned from them was overwhelming and uh, intense. What I will tell you is that everything you read about Turk was something that they experienced, one of them experienced. Um, among the things that kind of shocked me the most, um, they talked about uh, Aryan, um, Aryan Independence Day and Hitler's birthday celebration, which you will be delighted to know happened here in the hills of New Hampshire and Vermont, where currently white supremacists are stockpiling weapons for the racial holy war. And at these big events, they uh, basically set up tents, and they have uh, cross lightings at night, and they have white power bands, and they have games for the kiddies, where you can, for example, pin a star on the Jew, or you can hit a pinata that is an African-American man hanging from a noose, or you can target shoot, and the targets are Martin Luther King and Barack Obama's face. Um, this is going on right now. Uh, they also talked about how many of the white supremacists nowadays are not running in violent crews in inner cities. They're in a way more terrifying because they look like you and me and they work online in uh, individuals, as individuals or bundled in little cells. And their whole motive is to create fear, to incite fear. So for example, they'll go into a Jewish community and they'll leave copies of the final call from the Nation of Islam underneath the windshield wipers when everyone's at synagogue. Uh, they'll put up anti-white propaganda in a white space. And the idea is to make it feel as if there are many more of them than there actually are. And the other thing, operating in plain sight. They're working out totally. of the suburbs. Yeah, they look just like you and me. Wow. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the other thing that's revealed is the cluelessness that white people have about being black in America. You know, there are several little incidents... Um, for one, shopping together, white woman, black woman. The black woman gets stopped on her way out of TJ Maxx to look at her receipt. Uh, one of the colleagues of the attorney that Ruth has, he is a black man doing a little reconnaissance work in a gated community, mm -hmm. and he's like, I'm, I'm not peering over the wall. I'm going to get shot. Yeah. I mean, so, so when that invisible partition sort of rises up between people, I'm just kind of wondering, like, what kind of conversations do you think that's going to inspire at the book club? Oh, I hope great conversations. Um, you know, the really interesting thing is when I was writing that there's this one scene in the book where uh, Ruth takes Kennedy, her lawyer, shopping, and they're in a grocery store. I don't know if it's a grocery store. It's a, some convenience store. And uh, Kennedy opens a bag of chips and starts eating as she's walking through the aisles, which, you know, I'm going to admit I've done when I'm really hungry. Um, if you are a black woman, you do not do that because you will be accused of stealing. And when I wrote that scene, one of the women who was a sensitivity reader for me was so viscerally shaken by that scene because she said the minute 
the minute that Kennedy opened that bag of chips, she was like, oh, no, 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 what are you doing? And it, it didn't strike her until she read it, really, how, how big a, a wall that was for her. You know, she would never in a million years do that because she already knows what the outcome is going to be. Um, I think that, you know, if you, if you ta use this with your book club, and I really hope you will, uh, there are a bunch of questions that live on my website uh, for book clubs that begin with the book and segue into reality. I know I've set up a very daunting task. I know I'm asking all of you to talk about something that's very hard to talk about. And I know better than anyone that most of us don't have the vocabulary to talk about racism. So it's my hope that you can use this novel, this fiction, start talking about the situations like you just did between Ruth and Kennedy, between people who are not real, and then segue into some of the stuff that you hear about on the news that's upsetting you and begin to use what you've learned in this book to discuss some of those situations. You're listening to a conversation with Jody Picot, recorded live at the Historic Theater at the Music Hall in Portsmouth for writers on a New England stage. What's a sensitivity reader? A sensitivity reader is a person of color, in my case, who um, reads my work in an unfinished manuscript and gives me suggestions, corrections, so that I, as a white woman, can create the voice of a person of color with at least a semblance of authenticity. Hmm. So another thing that really comes up in this book, and, and the legal system has come up in a lot of your books, this is a question from a 13-year-old who became interested in the law because of your books. Love that. And I want to know how you find the facts <laughs> for the trials in the book, something I think we've all been pretty well gripped by. Um, honestly, you know, it's part of research. So for this book, you obviously heard me read a lot about a labor and delivery nurse. I had to meet with labor and delivery nurses in order to learn that because I'm not a labor and delivery nurse. Well, I'm also not an attorney, but when I write a book that has something legal in it, I will definitely meet with attorneys and have many arguments with them in the crafting of a fictional trial. What's really interesting about this particular book is I almost came to blows with the attorneys because one of the things that comes up in this book is the fact that in our country, you do not mention race in a trial. Even things that are incredibly racially motivated, for example, the shooting of Trayvon Martin by George Zimmerman, the judge literally, literally prohibited the term racial profiling from being uttered in court. On what grounds, though? Florida? I don't know. <laughs> um, but uh, No, I'm not sure. But the point is that if you want to lose a case, that's when you bring up race. Because race is so polarizing, you don't know what your jury is thinking, you don't know what your judge is thinking, and that becomes a big sticking point for Ruth and Kennedy. Kennedy wants to do her job. She wants to save Ruth. She wants to get her acquitted. And Kennedy knows exactly how to do that. And it is absolutely going to have nothing to do with the fact that a skinhead accused Ruth of something. Um, you know, so on the other hand, Ruth, this for her is a call to justice. And in a way, it almost doesn't matter if she's acquitted. This is like, this is a sticking point for her. And they really become very, uh, they come at at loggerheads about whether or not race should be in, brought up in court. When you read this book, think about the fact that we do not talk about race in any trial, even the ones that we all know are racially motivated. Yes, I mean, everybody knows it, but they just don't admit it. Mm -hmm. Well, 
So what kind of views do you have on the criminal justice system in America after your research for this book? Well, I think it's really hard to get a fair trial if you are not a certain type of defendant. Um, I also think that what makes trials particularly dicey when there is an element of racism involved is that even the defendants, uh, sorry, not the defendants, even the, the jury, the, the jurors, who would tell you, I'm not, I'm not racist, I may be white, but I'm not racist, there's still implicit bias. And of course, if anyone is as politically addicted as I am right now, you've heard the term implicit bias recently. And here's the thing about implicit bias. Everybody has it. Um, Beverly Daniel Tatum, who is an incredible racial justice educator and the former president of Spelman College, describes implicit bias as the smog of racism in the air. It's, it's everywhere. We don't see it, but we breathe it in every single day. And it's, like I said, it's the standard of beauty that makes it so that everybody knows white shampoos, but nobody knows what African-American shampoos are. Mm. Um, it is the sense that even a person of color will have implicit bias in favor of white people because that's how they grow up in the world. Mm. You know, so when you hear, for example, let's just say, you know, a vice presidential candidate saying there can't be implicit bias because it was an African-American cop who shot that boy. There's still a reason that there's implicit bias. Mm. So, you know, I just think that um, that's really important to think about uh, when when we're thinking about the criminal justice system. There are still a lot of ways that it is is heavily imbalanced, Um, not to mention the incarceration of African-Americans, which happens at a ridiculous, skewed rate. Um, There's a terrific book, if you haven't read, you should, called The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, which talks about how incarceration is the new slavery and is a fascinating and really um, appalling look at our criminal justice system. You do, in the book, spend a a fascinating amount of time, for me, um, on jury selection and the (laughs) importance of jury selection. And as you said, you know that people who have implicit implicit biases, but they don't really recognize it. But there's also an interesting sort of class race thing going on there. Because Ruth looks like, you know, she went to an Ivy League school for her nursing degree. She looks like what is said in the book is uppity. Mm Right, and that's, you know, it's very interesting that what would be considered a strong female, if you're white, would be uppity if you happen to be an African-American female. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and you can, you can dissect that because you could also argue that uh, strong female is not necessarily a compliment, uh, but strong man is, you know, and I think we all know where I would be going with that. <laughs> But you, actually, that's one of the places I think you really shine in your books is when there are legal cases. Is that a draw for you? What's, what's yeah, there I for you? Yeah, I love it. You know, I've done so many of them. I'm not a lawyer. I actually have a son who is going to go to law school uh, next year, and I'm so excited because, like, you know, he, technically he should always now be my legal research assistant, don't you think? Um, but, uh, but, you know, I, I really feel like at this point I've written so many cases that I have gotten better at it. And I'm honestly waiting for an honorary JD, but it hasn't come yet, so. (laughs) Note. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So this is asking about movie versions, because I'm sort of, especially in the courtroom scenes, I can kind of imagine the film. And several several films have been made of your books, right? Mm -hmm. Or several of your books have been made into films. 
Is there any particular one that you would really like to see on film? Yeah, 19 Minutes. <laughs> yeah. yeah? I'd love to see that as a film because I do think... Um, I'm glad you all agree. If there are any producers out there, come and see me. Uh, you know, honestly, I, I, think it's, I think it's something Hollywood isn't brave enough to make. Um, but I, I think it would... I think the audience that it needs to reach, um, and particularly teenagers, and uh, I, think, I think it could do a lot of good in the world. I would love to see that as a movie. Would you want to have control over the movie version of Small Great Things? Yes. Oh, I would like to have control over everything after my experience on My Sister's Keeper. Um, yeah. I didn't have a good experience with that. So, uh, yes, I would love to. And um, I think this would actually make a phenomenal movie as well. Mm. Can yeah. you imagine the leads? Uh, yes, I can. Are you going to tell totally. us who this is? Um, well, you know, like, if you listen to the audiobook, um, Audra McDonald is reading the audiobook. She's, she's Ruth. And... I mean, Audra McDonald, she's won like 18,000 Tonys, right? I mean, I, could I have gotten any better? She's unbelievable. And, um, you know, she, I, she can certainly step into that role if she wants to. I would love to see, though, um, I would love to see Kerry Washington or Viola Davis mm -hmm. take on Ruth. I think they'd be great. I don't, I don't think so much about the leads as much as um, Ava DuVernay directing it. That's what I want to happen. She's incredible. Okay. <laughs> it's out there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Let's talk about Kennedy a little bit, who is the court-appointed attorney. And, you know, she is, has to confront, as you did going through these workshops, her own racism, her own implicit biases, you know, as a woman who is dedicated to working with people charged in the criminal justice system, you know, she's a do-gooder in mm -hmm. the classic sense, right? Mm -hmm. So I was wondering if there's any of you in there, you know, the parts of you that had to confront, as you said, the veneer peering up, peeling 100%. off. 100%. And honestly... There is a part of, of everyone in this audience in Kennedy. Um, that's, that's kind of the point. She's your vehicle in to the book, I think. And she's certainly, um, she's the one who's, who was my inroad into this story. She's why I needed to tell this story. Um, we are all, all us white women, we are all Kennedy. And we all like to think that we are blameless, but we're not. Um, there's definitely an experience. One of the first things you see that happens with Kennedy is something that I am going to wager has happened to many people in this audience. Uh, she has a young daughter, and they go out to an Indian restaurant for dinner, she and her husband and her daughter, and her daughter very innocently asks something about the waiter and why he's wearing, a, he's a Sikh, he's wearing a turban, and she tries to explain that, you know, he's an Indian, and then she immediately follows that up with, well, why doesn't he look like Pocahontas? And, you know, if you have kids, very often, they will say something in a, from a place of innocence, and you feel like the ground should swallow you up right away. And um, I, that's an experience every mom that I know has had. And so that was really important to me to put in there, to see Kennedy trying so hard to cover her tracks and say the right thing. And she says what she thinks is the right thing, which is totally the wrong thing. She says, you know, oh, honey, you know, we're all the same underneath. And, you know, you hear that a lot. Oh, I'm colorblind. Well, that's really not so great. Because when you say I'm colorblind, what you're really saying is um, I am not acknowledging the fact that being, having different color skin means that someone else's life might have been a little more difficult than mine. Mm. So. so is that a signal to you now if someone says? Totally. I would never say I I'm colorblind. I would say, I, right, don't ever say that. Say, um, say I'm race aware. I get it. Well, so there's this, the sense is that 
advantages and disadvantages are on this kind of scale, right? That, yeah. you know, as a white person, I am just instantly have sort of privileges and more opportunities than somebody who's born with different color skin. It's like headwinds and tailwinds. That's the way I like to think about it. Um, and that's actually, that comes from Debbie Irving's book, a terrific book called Waking Up White. Uh, but the idea that it's really easy for us to see headwinds of racism, to, to know that there are ways that if you are a person of color in America, it might be harder for you to, to achieve success. But it's really hard for us to notice the tailwinds, to notice that there are benefits to having white skin in this, this you know, country. We like to pretend it's luck or hard work. You know, and honestly, sometimes it's a direct result of the fact that you have had an opportunity that a person of color has not. It might not be even something you know. You might have an apartment because your landlord didn't want to rent to a person of color. And that might have benefited you unwittingly. But you might also think, okay, I went to a really good school and it was because I worked really hard, I got good grades in my SATs. Well, that also could be because your mom was home every night to read to you when you were little and she instilled a value in that in you. And a person of color might have had a mom who had to work three jobs and wasn't around to read to her at night and, and was therefore always at a disadvantage and always catching up to where you were. And you know, when you look at it that way, suddenly the American dream isn't quite so dreamy. And it really, for me, it has been a seismic, prismic shift in the way I see the world. Well, that's, that's part of my question is that with these advantages in education, housing, job opportunities, the way you're treated by law enforcement, so, so how do you begin that conversation or how do you propose making that change or speaking with somebody about it when what they perceive is loss? I mean, it seems like a zero-sum That's a really game. good point. A lot of people, you know, feel that uh, it's hard for white people to accept this because if you do so, it means you lose something. You lose your winning lottery ticket. Why would I want, why would I want to upset an apple cart where I'm always the winner, right? That's kind of going on in the background. And it really, it does require that seismic shift and realizing when you level the playing field, it's not that someone wins and someone loses, everybody wins. Everybody wins when everyone has a fair path to success. Yeah. But I'm thinking about what's going on in our country right now. You know, a lot of people whose economic livelihood has changed, yes. you know, they're afraid that America is slipping away from them. Something that used to belong to them mm -hmm. is slipping away. Yeah, I know. And um, that's, it's not slipping away. It's, um, it's that sometimes, honestly, when you have only heard your own voice, you've, oh, you've been the only one in the room talking, and you have to share your airtime it's just a shift. It's, it's, um, it's upsetting and it, you, you kind of rear back and you have to get used to it. You know, you talk a little bit, you asked a little bit about how do you, how do you create this change when it's so overwhelming. There's no question that race, racism is systemic, that it's institutional, that it's big and messy and no one person is going to fix this. But it's both perpetuated and dismantled by individuals in individual acts. And every time that someone speaks up every time that you have a conversation, even in an all-white space about racism, every time that you don't shy away from the conversation but lean into it, even if it hurts or makes you uncomfortable, all of those things are very slowly 
bringing us closer together. Well, it's one thing with Uncle Bob, right? And right. But, you know, also I think a lot of us <laughs> live in a, almost an echo chamber of people who think somewhat like us, mm-hmm. right? Right. Um, one of my neighbors is going door to door, getting registering people to vote. And one of our older neighbors is really terrified about immigrants, and she's really upset about people not respecting police. So how do you begin a conversation with somebody like that who has this kind of fear? That's a really good question. I would hand them small, great things. I would read the book, and I would honestly, I'd start talking from the point of view of the book. Let the fiction do your work. Let me take that hard part off you. Honestly, it's like, I, I hope it's a tool. I really do, because it's really hard to dive into that conversation. Where do you even start? Because she's going to put up a wall the minute you start talking. So don't. Say, read this book. You're going to enjoy this book. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> and, then, um, and then, you know, talk about the characters and then begin to ask her questions based on them. Like I'm, t- I'm saying, the, the beauty of fiction is that it lets us get into messy discussions about truth and facts that we would rather not have. Another point. (laughs) (laughs) By the book. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today it's Writers on a New England Stage with Jodi Picot, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. We're talking about her most recent book, Small Great Things. Uh, Question from the audience here. Any of your books you thought you wouldn't finish? Uh, The one I told you about earlier. You know, I I actually tried really, really hard to finish that, and it didn't happen. Excuse me, there have only been two books in my life that I didn't finish. That was one of them. And the other one was a book, I honestly don't even remember what it was about, but I do remember the genesis of it was the fact that Dartmouth students move so slow on campus that I always was afraid I was going to hit them when I'm driving. And it had to do with like a hit and run, but, and it was like, it was a good book. It was like a mystery. And, and I shelved it because I kept hearing the voice of a character in my head that was not in this book who kept saying to me, I was six years old the first time I disappeared. And she was so annoying that I finally sat down one day and wrote 40 pages in her voice and realized that was the book I should be writing. And that turned into Vanishing Acts. Ah. Let's see. Um, Do you have a favorite book out of all that you've written? So, I mean, I've been asked this question forever, like for 25 years now. And I have always said second glance, right? I'm sure there are people here who've heard this. This book has superseded that. And honestly, I've never had a book grab me by the throat so far, you know, like this one has. It's not just how much I learned. It's that even now, I can't get rid of it. I can't stop talking about it. I am not thinking about my new characters yet. I'm not thinking about anything yet, except for the people who inhabit this book and what they've learned. It just really has settled in me. I guess I'm throwing out all the questions about which book you're working on. (laughs) Yeah. You never I know what that I'm, anyway. I know what I'm doing next, but I'm not telling you, so sorry. <laughs> but you know, it is a heavy book. I mean, I, re- I yeah. went, I w- it, it grabbed me. It you took know, me longer lot- to write than any book I've ever written. Huh. It, uh, 1,200 pages of research that I did. 1,200 pages of transcripts. I mean, so just imagine a, that. What, do you hand those off to your editor, or do you... No, she doesn't want to read this. Um, no, I, I, I turn them into fiction. Yeah. And uh, then I pack them all up in a nice little box, and I give them to UMass Amherst, which has an archive of all of my stuff. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's good to so know. So when, when you need to write the Jody Pico thesis, that's where you should go. <laughs> but you have written books about suicide, abused wives, rape victims, you know, f- victims of physical abuse. I have a friend who's here tonight who devoured hours your books 
And one of her friends asked her why she reads such depressing books. So what, what is the draw for you of difficult subjects and pushing into that thing that people think, oh, I just don't want to hear about it? I think that's why I write. You know, I mean, to me, I, the act of writing a book for me is actively struggling with something that's bothering me. And I usually come to a topic because it's keeping me up at night and I'm worried as, as a wife, as a woman, as an American, um, I, something as a mom, you know, I, I, I just can't shake this thought. And if I keep thinking about it long enough, like characters just pop up like little mushrooms and they begin to create a story for me. And that is the act of writing a book for me. It's the act of working through something I don't understand. I'd like to think it's maybe the same act that reading is for all of you when you pick up the book. Um, but for me, it's not depressing. It's uh, learning. It's it's trying to wrestle with something that is confusing to me. So I guess it's like therapy in 400 pages or something like that. But that's basically why I write about those things. I also fully believe I could not write about the things that I write about if I were living anything like that. And I truly have like the best life ever. So I'm really fortunate. I have great kids. Everyone's healthy. I have the best husband on the planet, you know. Where so did you come from? I, How did this yeah, New York? I don't know. Yeah. No, honestly, I, I'm really, really fortunate. And I think that but there's how such did, a, How did this start for you? I mean, how did you, why, why plunge, you know, put on the asbestos gloves and grab these difficult topics? Well, it was really easy for me because it evolved very gradually. My very, very first book was about what it meant to be a young woman stepping away from your mother. And that was what I was going through at the time. I had just left college and I wasn't going home and like I had to learn how to adult, you know? And then um, my next book was after I was married and I had this child who had colic and was constantly crying. And, and I used to have this wonderful fantasy of just driving down the highway and throwing my husband's shirts out the window instead of taking them to the dry cleaner and never coming back. And you know, that, that became a whole dissertation on what it meant to be a mom. And then I had this whole run of books that was all about all the really scary things that can happen to your kid because I was a mom and that's what I worried about. And, you know, and so I think that I, as I evolve and think and grow, those topics are what rise to the surface for me. Hmm. You must have a very large file. I mean, there are so many details in this book. There's uh, the, the military ban on black hair, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Um, the white poet who used a Chinese pseudonym and his poem was published in the Best American Poetry yep. Anthology. It was, do you just keep these things and sock them away? To be honest, when I was writing this book, every morning I would turn on the news or, you know, or read something online and go, okay, I guess that's going in too. Um, there is no shortage of in- examples of microaggression and what I would call macroaggression when it comes to race. Does it ever, I, I don't know, you, you, you get into the head of some very, very difficult subjects mm. where they pop up for you, as you were saying. Does it ever get to be too much? I mean, is there... I will tell you that every time I was writing one of Turk's chapters, I had to go downstairs and take a shower. Yeah. I mean, he was a really offensive character to me. And I, I, what I hated was that um, I got to a point in his voice where I could, like, type the N-word without it upsetting me. And that was even worse because I really, I had become in his head immune to the things that should really viscerally upset me. Mm. So um, yeah, it was really nice to get rid of him. (laughs) Um, Here's some levity for that. (laughs) What's your favorite Disney ride? 
Oh my God, that's the best question ever and one I haven't ever been asked. Um, so I have to tell you, Disney is like a religious experience for me. And uh, I have to say that the only way you should ever go to Disney World is with your 25-year-old gay son, which is the way I do it. And um, I, had, I just went last uh, August with Kyle and his brand new husband, Kevin, and uh, we, on yay, I know, isn't that the best? Yay! <laughs> It was only two weeks ago, so I like just saying, and his husband, Kevin. Um, and uh, we, we have this thing. When we go to the Magic Kingdom, we set a goal for ourselves, which is to ride every ride and to attend every attraction and show in one day. Which really, it's like, that is an athletic event that is not going to Disney. And Kyle is very organized, he's very good at it, but I mean, I mean everything. I mean the Tiki Room, I mean Thomas Warrior's Island, the places nobody wants to go, and I go anyway. And uh, so I can tell you that the best exhibit, actually, at Disney, at Magic Kingdom in Disney World, I'd say, is um, Bell's, what's it called? Bell's Enchanted Tales. Because it's children's theater, it's the coolest thing. You know, and the kids come in and they act out Beauty and the Beast with her. And it's, it's adorable. These cute little kids, you know, holding up something and being Chip. And one is the Beast in a cape. And I love it because it's like the power of theater and storytelling. And it's very low-key by comparison to other rides. Um, but it's a terrific uh, attraction. The other one that's really cool, which is brand new, is the um, Seven Dwarfs Mine Ride. You should go on it if you go back. You what's, can thank your favorite, me um, what's your favorite song from Hamilton? Oh, I know. That changes like daily, honestly. <laughs> I work out to Hamilton now, um, which is great because I know exactly where I am in the story and how much more time I have to be like on a treadmill. But um, I, I say right now, I think my favorite song today would be Burn. I, you know, you built palaces uh, out of par paragraphs. You built cathedrals. Lin-Manuel Miranda's a genius, I just <laughs> yeah. have to say. Yeah. So beautiful. So I know the book has only been out for a couple of days, but I'm wondering what kinds of things you are hearing from, mm. from readers mm -hmm. and reviewers. Yeah. So, I mean... Do you read reviews, by the way? <laughs> it depends. Uh, <laughs> I, it's funny. I, I really try hard not to read Amazon or Goodreads reviews because I think they're petty. And I'm sorry, you should not give me a star if your book came late. I had nothing to do with that. Um, you know, but... Uh, I do, I, this morning I did kind of check to see where my rating was, and they, it was like four and a half or four and three quarter stars, which made me feel very good. Um, but I, you know, I, I think that there have been, it's been an overwhelmingly positive response uh, from readers, which is very gratifying and very humbling. Uh, I think it's causing conversations. I've had multiple emails from people in the, literally the four days I've had events saying, you know that conversation you wanted me to have? It happened last night and here's what I did. And that is so great. That is really all I could ask for for, for this particular book. Um, I'm really pleased and, and humbled at the same time by that. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's going to be an interesting ride. I mean, I know there are going to be people who are mad because I chose to write this book. There are going to be there are going to be people of color who think I don't have the right to write it. There are going to be white people who call me race traders, a race trader. And, you know, I kind of feel like I knew this was coming. I decided to walk into the kitchen. It's going to be hot. It's okay. I can take it. I would still rather take it and stand there sweating than not have written this book at all. I, I saw a great interview. <laughs> You're being very sweet. <laughs> I saw a review from Roxanne Gay in the New York Times. I mean, that's a, a 
She's an author, she's a commentator, she's a Haitian-American, um, and she applauded you for your vigorous research, mm -hmm. your good intentions, and your awareness of your fallibility. Mm -hmm. And having said that, she also said, this is, you know, she acknowledged as you do, it's for a predominantly white audience. Yeah, I, I really was very pleased that she got that, yeah. you know. So what about for the rest of us, she says then. Yeah, well, but that was a really interesting line for me because when I read that, I, I thought, thank you, that's lovely, but I would not and never should be writing a book about racism for people of color. But she was kind of spurring you on. She said, I hope, I hope you do it. I, I would argue I should never do that, honestly. And, you know, I, I would be the first to tell you, here's what I wish for all of you. Read this book and then go out, go back to your bookstore, go to your library, and go pick up a book by an author of color. There are so many incredible authors of color out there. Roxane Gay is one of them. Colson Whitehead, Octavia Butler, Gloria Naylor, Toni Morrison, Celeste Ng, Sherman Alexie. I mean, I, I literally could go on for 40 years about all the amazing authors of color that are out there. But if you look at your bookshelf and it's predominantly white authors, that's a really good way to check your own implicit bias. Ask yourself why. And then go out and change that. That's a really easy change to make. You know, it's great when we read the voices that are like us but we learn more when we read voices that aren't like mm -hmm. us. And so, um, although I think it is fantastic that Roxane Gay might trust me enough to write a book for an audience of color, I would say I prefer to read that story from someone who's lived it. Mm -hmm. I can approximate it, I can do my homework, but honestly, it's people of color who can really tell you what it's like to be a person of color in America. Well, we know the cultural trope of the white savior, right? Yes. And you are, you know, here we are again in this majority white state. So, so what's the role of the white ally? ally? What is the, what are, what's a small great thing that we can do? I am going to make this so easy for you. I stole this from a really great activist called Kayla Reed on Twitter. But the word ally itself is a great mnemonic for what you should be doing if you want to be a white ally. A, always center the oppressed. So it's not about you. It's about someone else. L, listen to people who are living this life. Talk to the people and understand where they've come from and what they face every day. L, leverage your privilege. Go talk to Uncle Bob at Thanksgiving. And Y, yield the microphone. Make sure that someone else's voice is heard if it's not often heard. Isn't that easy? I can spell ally. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Jody Picot, before we properly thank you, we do have several people to thank for this production. The Music Hall executive producer, Patricia Lynch. Music Hall producer, Margaret Talcott. NHPR's president is Betsy Gardella. Writers on a New England stage interviewer is me. I just read my own name. Yes, that happened. <laughs> New Hampshire Public Radio broadcast producer is Logan Shannon. New Hampshire Public Radio digital producer, Sarah Plourd. Music Hall production manager is Jana Morris. Live sound and recording engineer for the Music Hall is Jason Martin. The musical director and band always kicking it, Bob Lord and Dreadnought. And live stage photography is by David J. Murray. And you can see those pictures posted within a couple days at Clear Eye Photo. Now, this is the time to summon your Jody Pico love and thank <laughs> her for being here tonight. That's so nice. Thank you.